Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the challenges facing the UK market, including the falling value of the pound and what opportunities may lie ahead. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Stephen Peters, Senior Fund Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to today's Word on the Street podcast. There remains a lot going on, both in the UK and beyond, and capital markets continue to be very volatile and pretty unsettling, even for those of us who have been involved for a long time. I think the main focus this week will be the UK, where of course we're seeing a new government take shape, facing up to what remains a very challenging short-term outlook. This week, we have Stephen Peters joining us from our manager and funds research team. So, Will, start us off. What is the latest? I'd really rather Stephen started us off, to be honest. But uh, hello, hello, Sarah. Hello, Stephen. Hello, listeners. I hope the summer holidays, summer holidays delivered a little respite. You are right, Sarah. There is an awful lot going on and we can't probably do it justice in 15, 20 minutes. We'll start. I think we start off probably best focusing on the stuff that's going on outside of the UK and then kind of zero in on that. Um, uh, zero in on the UK. But it, it's all kind of relevant context, I think. And, and remember, for investors, it's the US economy that really matters. That's what, uh, you know, that's where the drumbeat for the world's capital markets comes from. And remember, the story here is of an economy that entered this year going way too fast. You know, too much demand for everything, workers, goods, services, so on. Now, central bankers have taken their foot off the accelerator, you know, raising interest rates and are increasingly uh, looking to apply the brakes in order to kind of bring the, the economy back to a kind of bring demand back to a more sustainable pace. That does seem to be starting to work on the evidence of uh, uh, incoming data. But looking at sort of a range of data, sort of job openings, trends in wage growth, and even some of the sort of survey data that there's a long way to go in this uh, in this slowdown. So, you know, coming quarter should see more oxygen denied to the all-important US consumer, which should uh, start to slow things further. And that will have an effect on all of us. That's where, like I say, you know, most of the economic wind uh, and drumbeat comes from for the capital markets. China, for its part, you know, just just to remind us that it's not just the UK facing an incredibly perilous moment. Uh, China also, you know, they're struggling with fresh outbreaks of COVID and the lockdowns that come with that, a wobbling property market uh, and more besides. Uh, don't underestimate how difficult the near-term outlook is there for, uh, you know, on any account. And Europe, finally getting around to where we are, um, including the UK, is obviously you know right on the front line of this kind of energy ha- uh, energy crisis. You know, households, businesses, they're under enormous strain from uh, the rising commodity costs, bludgeoned further by you know central bankers desperately trying to raise interest rates up to kind of fight future inflation or inflation expectations out of the frying pan of a. Uh, you know, devastating pandemic and into the fire of war and the cost of living list of crisis. So the curse of living in interesting times, I'm afraid. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I want to be happier on this somewhat gloomy day, but yeah. Well, I'm going to ask Stephen, can you make us happier on this gloomy day? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi, listeners. Um, Can I make you happier? I'm not right now. I mean, I'd make two observations or one main observation from uh, if you look at the at the UK stock market, which is that the stock market is not the economy. Now, I'm sure listeners have heard this before in relation to other markets. Often people say this about Japan, but it's definitely the case for the UK. Well, you know, the, the FTSE 100, the index of the UK's biggest companies, biggest listed companies, is a globally diversified index. I mean, 
probably you know more than probably two thirds of its of its revenue comes from overseas earnings. And that's one of the reasons why I suppose it's done well this year. Clearly, it's been influenced by the oil price, but also by other global names, uh, such as those operating in pharmaceuticals um, and banks to, to, a, to a lesser extent. So when you listen to uh, doom and gloom about the UK economy, remember that the stock market is not um, entirely reflective of the UK economy. Having said that, outside of the FTSE 100, uh, what's known as the FTSE 250 or the FTSE Small Cap Index, the smaller listed companies, they, they have struggled. Um, we've spoken about this before. There are two reasons, two main reasons. Firstly, obviously, the concerns over domestic conditions, you know, expectations now of a recession, you know, linked to political events. But also, and this started before the end of last year, a sell-off in what people would known as growth companies, growth investments. These are the faster growing companies, which were placed on higher valuation multiples in the market over previous years. In previous years, they've done really well. Since about September last year, they haven't. So, so it's not a story of hope, particular hope at this stage from me. But do remember, just to reiterate, the stock market is not entirely the UK economy. I would say that was measured delivery of happiness. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that, Stephen. Cheer. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was better than mine, but anyway. Um, so maybe Stephen, staying with you. In your role, you spend a lot of time talking to fund managers. What are you hearing from them at the moment? Okay, well, um, so the first thing, and I think I've said this on this podcast before, which is that fund managers are paid to be positive and upbeat. You'll very rarely hear them being prophets of doom. And I'd also say that most of them are better at stock selection than forecasting uh, economics. Uh, so I, I generally, when I'm listening to them over the years, I've learned to put less weight on their predictions when it comes to inflation, interest rates, GDP growth, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I kind of uh, gloss over that and I listen more to what they actually say about stocks. But even more important is that is to look at what they do because they can say anything, but it's what they do which really shows what they think. And I think the fact that I've seen a, a distinct lack of trading this year, despite market conditions, is really interesting. And what does that tell you? Well, looking through some of the commentaries that I've read from managers, I think what I, I can sum up is what I can say is best sum up by this quote from a particular manager. I won't name them. But in quote is this. The gap between the operational performance and news flow at a stock level and share prices is the closest to the widest it has ever been. Now, what does that mean? That means that the share prices reflect doom and gloom, as we've spoken about. But actually, these companies are performing quite well. It's just not being recognized in the stock market. So these are managers. They're not incurring costs where they don't need to. They don't see the need to trade. So they don't trade. On the other side, the ones that have traded more this year are the ones which, to be frank, weren't very well positioned going into this year. They've probably been invested too much into small cap companies and particularly those going into the year that were very highly valued. Instead, they've sold those and they've tried to move into other companies which are uh, more exposed and more designed to benefit from inflation, such as financial companies. But just on a, a small point of hope, if, you, if you'd call it that, these small company funds have performed quite badly this year, it must be said. But what they are saying now, and I haven't heard this for a long time, is they are saying they are seeing valuations of certain parts of the small cap market similar to what they last saw in 2008 at the bottom of uh, you know, what became known as the global financial crisis. Now, that's big words. That's not a prediction of future outsized performance. But clearly, and it comes with a big risk, they are seeing a big opportunity. Thanks, Stephen. And yeah, that chimes with what we're hearing from our business bank. 
Well, if I can be brave and come back to you, as we are recording this, we're just hearing about the support package that's coming out from the government. Any early thoughts from you about what this means and what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think for context, obviously, you know, this is the most pressing crisis facing um, the UK and kind of unevenly is the cost of living crisis and it's unevenly crushing living standards, particularly for the you know most vulnerable households in the UK, as we know, in terms of sort of uh, culprits or perceived culprits, you know, the, the various sort of ideas are, you know, the war in Ukraine, long term underinvestment in fossil fuel supply, shocks from COVID, I'm arguing Brexit. However, you know, without help, some of which you just described, and we'll get into in a second, you know, households face, they're still facing eye-watering increases in their winter bills. Many viable uh, businesses will surely not be able to absorb these uh, rising energy costs, already battered by supply chain disruptions and volatility of the past few years. The other bit that's facing her just just before we get into it, before this government, is obviously this kind of slower burn productivity crisis. And that's been worsening the lot of many households for many years. And that's a separate package of problems. We can expect more on that, I guess, in the budget coming later in the month. I believe we'll hear something a little bit more detail on um, there's a chancellor's, the new chancellor's upcoming fiscal event uh, is currently expected on the 21st of September. But in terms of the pillars of the response we're seeing so far, you know, you've obviously got this new energy price guarantee capping the average dual fuel energy bill for households at around two and a half thousand pounds annually and that's supported again uh, to the the support of businesses is extending a similar energy price guarantee for six months and also the other sort of strand is this encouragement of domestic energy production by reviewing regulations and ending the moratorium on fracking there'll be all sorts of views flying around on these things in terms of the funding you know there's obviously complexities with regards to you know if this is this is going to be quite a costly program to uh, to deliver and so if it's from borrowing as you know seems to be the case that that is essentially extra demand at a time when you know the central bank is trying to cool demand um, so it's very complicated policy trade-off there are no easy wins to make it's it's as complicated a policy backdrop as I can remember really but although this should lower inflation in the short term what you might find when it ends, is that you get more medium-term inflation problems, which is, again, going to worry the Bank of England. But we're going to hear a lot more about this in the next couple of days, and we'll hear a lot more on the policy itself uh, from Olivia next week, much more knowledgeably and, yes, authoritatively, one hopes. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) The other thing I wanted to ask you, Will, is just what can we learn from currency markets at the moment, beyond that it's now more expensive than ever to holiday in the US? I think I'm right in saying the amount of dollars you get for every pound is down at a level not seen since 1985. Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, I think there's a number of things going on here, Sarah. I mean, one of the sort of scare stories doing the rounds amongst investors and analysts and so on is this, um, and I don't want to get too wonky on this because one can is this idea of the potential for a balance of payments crisis which is something you know not really seen since the 1970s for the UK and the uh, famous loan from the IMF and this was a seen as a humiliating moment for the UK economy and amongst a very difficult difficult economic backdrop we've talked about this before but in a way Britain has long been seen as a relatively attractive destination for international investors international capital there's loads of reasons for that and I think quite a lot of misunderstanding about this as well you know my personal interpretation i think there are probably enough sort of 
who agree to sort of, you know, to, to make this point. But it, it's about stable political institutions, the rule of law, in a sense, the rules of the game here respected. You want as an international investor, if you think about it, if you're going to pour a load of money in for 10, 20 years into a certain project, what you'd really like to know is that you're going to be dealing with roughly the same legal framework, the same regime, so that you're not just going to be told somewhere near the end, actually, that's my money and I'm going to build a palace of my own with that money and you don't have any recourse to it because that's obviously going to discourage international investors. So the UK for many hundreds of years, in fact, has been a very good place for international capital because this is a place generally where the rules of the game are respected and the rules are good, you know, perceived, you know, rule of law, like I say, and stable political institutions. Now, the last few years in the minds of some have provided some challenges to that narrative with, let's say, some increased fluidity uh, in many of those perceived attractive traits. That's a problem because international investors allow us in the UK to persistently spend beyond our means. So overall expenditure exceeds national income. We are a net borrower with the rest of the world. If that wobbles, sterling uh, will have to compensate for that fact. So in a sense, you would need much lower sterling. Now, for some people, that might be an attractive thing, uh, but it does come with all sorts of other problems like much higher inflation, as you pointed out, like the cost of overseas goods goes up in sterling terms. That's very difficult. But for investors in overseas assets, as it goes, you know, for instance, our multinational, uh, internationally diversified portfolios, the sterling effect is actually quite helpful because we own or our clients own a lot of US emerging market and European assets, particularly those US assets. The value of those is burnished in sterling terms. However, it does come with all sorts of um, disadvantages. Sorry, long winded. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on in the currency as well. But that's just one of the things to think about, I think. OK, thanks, Phil. Um, Stephen, maybe I could bring you back. Have you got any thoughts as well? It's kind of the opposite side of what Will was talking about. The other side of what Will's saying is a uh, is is looking at it, looking at UK assets from the perspective of an overseas investor. Um, yes, you can argue that you know the Wimbledonization of of the UK economy is weakened, which is the Wimbledonization meaning is we don't care you know where you're from as long as you play on our territory. Is I think it's still the case, and it's still the case because you can see how many UK listed companies have been bought over the last two or three years by overseas investors and particularly private equity funds run by companies based in America. And you can argue as well why they would or would not uh, make that decision. But I think one thing that we forget, or one difference that they have uh, between uh, how they invest and how maybe the average equity fund or private investor invests is time horizon. Some of these people think in terms of decades. So they're prepared to buy a well-managed UK company that is unloved by the stock market, buy it, run it privately, do the changes away from the glare of, of uh, investors and, um, and make lots of, hopefully make lots of money out of it in a private form. So I think that's a really important point to remember that the UK is still attractive for the long-term investor. Sorry, can I just jump in there? Because yeah. obviously this is the point. I'm sure you're trying to make and making much clearly, but that obviously is such an important point for our investors to bear in mind, given their time. Most of you know the investors that we're looking to help, you know, their time frame should be 10 to 20 years if they can do it. So the fact that these very careful international investors are finding such attraction in the UK does, yes, yeah. I'm sure that's the point you're making, and I'm just yeah. doing it a bit. Just copying you. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, absolutely. And, but then if you if you don't have that, um, if you take the view that a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, 
then what else can you do? Well, you can look for dividends. And the UK market is historically and today one of the highest yielding markets across the world. And dividend focused strategies do look quite attractive right now. Why? These dividends are quite secure. The companies that uh, that are paying them are are using lots of cash flow to pay dividends and buy back shares. And lots of these dividends are being produced by larger companies. And with that and valuations being reasonably attractive, larger companies do look somewhat right now more attractive than than smaller companies, at least for the the next couple of years. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Um, Just as you mentioned earlier, Will, we've got Olivia joining us next week to talk about the UK. And we've also got Rob Mansell. So we're going to cover both the UK and China. Any final words from either of you about what investors should be doing right now? Well, can I just say, first of all, just a few points on sort of, you know, just thinking things for people to think about before we get into that long term investment point, because I think Stephen's got some good stuff to say there. But I think just some anchoring points, stylized points to think about with regards to incoming policy from all governments around the world, not just the UK, and thinking about, you know, tax cuts and growth and other factors, you know, that we need to think about. For me personally, well, not just for me personally, actually, there was a very interesting, just on the idea of tax cuts and growth, there's pretty, you know, there's and this is stylized, but there was a very interesting paper, which I would recommend to anyone that looked at the effect of tax cuts in 18 uh, developed countries over the last 50 years and found pretty conclusively no meaningful effect on growth or unemployment. Just worth bearing in mind. It doesn't mean doesn't mean it never has to work. But the idea that trickle down economics is kind of, you know, an automatic route to faster growth, that there's no evidence, even if the intuition appeals to some. I also think as an aside, and again, this is not just reference to the UK, but the US um, and certain other notables, the blows of the pandemic and and this last kind of live, this cost of living crisis, you know, they've, they've fallen hardest, they've rained hardest on the poorest households and those with the least capacity to absorb it, as we just said. Now, in the US, trends in inequality, wealth and income were already kind of quite eye-watering you know, coming into this crisis. That's less the case in the UK, admittedly. However, the point here is, and I think this is something that um, a few people are, I think, interestingly pointing out, that the freedom where, you know, we supposedly cherish in much of the Western world and other parts of the world and preach to others, admittedly, is not or should not be just about freedom of speech. It also has to be freedom of action and opportunity. Um, And in a way, the future of portfolio returns, particularly our globally diversified portfolios, really rests on humankind and making the most of not just the richest parts of society, but making most of the incredible talent from the billions of people that are around the world. And it's not just those who are already rich. You know, as we always say, there's a great point that if genius is evenly distributed, then in the bottom billion people in terms of income distribution, there are a million people of genius level IQ. Now, that doesn't mean those geniuses are going to automatically invent the stuff that's going to change our lifestyles but and portfolio returns over long terms. But, you know, in a way, distributing and making sure that opportunity is distributed as evenly amongst those billions, that almost is the key to those long-term portfolio returns. And just final point before I go over to Stephen, you know, with regards to your question that you were really asking me, which was nothing to do with anything I just spoke about, as always. The, what, should, um, what should investors be doing right now? What should investors be doing right now? It's, it's self-serving and familiar advice, but just remember that none of this that's going on right now is really that important to your long-term investment outcome. 
that will be decided not by the chances rising and falling of a recession in the UK or even in the US or the problems in China. That will almost have nothing to do with it. It will be decided by our ability over time, over the five years, 10 years, 20 years, to make more stuff from a given set of inputs, productivity. And that, in my opinion, is going to be, will be reliably delivered by the incoming revolution in artificial intelligence, healthcare, all sorts of incredible advances that lie just on the visible horizon. Keep optimistic and diversify. You know, Stephen's point about the UK is well made, but the point about our multi-asset class funds and portfolios is they don't just rely on the UK doing okay. They lean across the world's population and try and make the most of that incredible ingenuity and innovation that humankind has nearly always demonstrated. So bet on that and don't worry too much about the incoming political environment and the, uh, you know, the various things that we have to worry about in the short term uh, in our personal lives. You're ending it on a positive. I like Tried that. Tried to. But the final word, Stephen, goes to you. What do you think investors should be doing right now? Um, I think investors should remember that bad news sells papers and uh, <laughs> oh, I like it. And that um, if you give a journalist an opportunity to bash something, they will, be it a person or an economy or an economic plan. But um, I just remind uh, investors to go back to 2000 and 2000 to 2003, the TMT boom and bust, or 2007-2009, the global financial crisis, things looked dreadful. There was no visibility. You couldn't see what was going to get better. But in that two decades, we've had you know, the rise of the internet and all of the social media for good and ill, and you know all the extra uh, excellent technology that's been invented over that time. You know, in the dark days of 2008, people thought the world was going to hell in a handcart. Subsequent to that, we had a decade of things getting better, rising equity markets. So I'd just say that it, whilst it looks awful now, just to reiterate what Will says, be diversified and be long-term. Think in terms of years rather than quarters and you know multiple years rather than single years. And, and if you do that, stay patient and, and, and don't focus on day-to-day market movements. You'll be happier, I hope. Also, you will over the long-term be wealthier. Excellent. Well, thank you, Stephen. I plan to be happier. And thank you, Will, for joining us today. And thank you, listeners. Have a good week and speak to you next week. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We don't offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you are unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.